Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I got a promotion. Um, excuse me. <laughs> you did. I'm sorry. Your associate editor, Noah Rothman. Don't hold me to this. That's probably legally Aww. binding since I said it publicly. <laughs> Um, we are having, I, Noah hates when I say this, but we're having technical problems today. So I'm a little rattled. So we'll see how this goes. There are going to be some gaps. And for all I know, this whole thing is not going to work at all. But uh, the uh, Noah Rothman is an associate editor, executive editor is Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Happy to share my uh, job with Noah. Thank you. And uh, senior writer, Christine Rosen, the only person to hold that that title. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So um, uh, we are uh, recording this Friday morning. Sometime early this afternoon, the president will speak uh, to the crisis at the airport in Kabul and whatever else it is that he has to say or or wants to say. Um, I... Noah, you you wanted to begin or wanted to have a conversation um, about a thread done by our friend Jim Garrity at National Review on Twitter, um, raising questions that I uh, I brought up yesterday. I think about the Twenty Fifth Amendment, meaning what on earth is going on this week with Joe Biden? a most important week of his presidency, biggest crisis of his presidency. We have crises on two fronts, by the way, because we are crowded out the crisis uh, in, in, in COVID and the Delta variant, which is accelerating, but is a very specific kind of crisis that is not being dealt with, in my view, correctly by our public health authorities, not surprisingly, is, of course, slightly on the back burner because of the overwhelming crisis in Afghanistan. But he is facing existential threats to his presidency on two fronts. And he's in Delaware, and he is hiding at Camp David, and he doesn't say anything and all of that. And so he's going to speak this afternoon, presumably to do what he can to tamp some of this down. But Noah, please um, expound on, on what on what Jim is talking about in relation to the odd behavior of the president this week. Sure. So I want to begin my little rant here. Um, by reading from the transcript of the interview that uh, Joe Biden gave to George Stephanopoulos uh, on, I guess they recorded on Wednesday uh, about the situation in Afghanistan. Stephanopoulos asks, quote, how will history judge the United States experience in Afghanistan? The president responds, quote, one that we overextended what we needed to do to deal with our national interests. That's like my saying they, they're, they, they, but but the border of Tajikistan and other what does it matter? Are we going to go to war because of what's going on in Tajikistan? What do you think? I know what I think. That's incoherent. And you're scaring me. No joke. The president has been absent. Kate Bedingfield is on CNN this morning saying, obviously, this is the president's laser focus right now, getting rid of you know, getting people out of Afghanistan. No, it's not. He gave a speech on Wednesday about COVID, took no questions. He, say, he sent tweets out yesterday about taking a Zoom meeting with Democratic legislatures regarding his Build Back Better agenda. This president has done its best. This presidency has done its best to 
allied this issue, allied the 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 the, uh, the crisis that's going on in Afghanistan, and try to change the subject, try to treat it like it's just another news cycle. And all the while, he's been genuinely absent. He's been trying to maintain this vacation schedule. Like he briefly took a break from his Camp David vacation. And I know the president never takes a vacation, yada, yada, yada. Nonsense. When the optics are what they are in Afghanistan, you're in the Oval Office. And he's not. Up to and including talking about taking a late, a long weekend this weekend. I don't think that's operative anymore, but maybe he goes back on vacation after he does this brief address to the public, deigning to address their concerns about Americans, thousands of Americans who are trapped behind enemy lines and we have no plan to get them out. This presidency is, is... treating this as though it's just another news cycle. But I don't know if that's a strategy, necessarily, a communication strategy, or a necessity born out of what Jim Garrity talked about in a a very interesting and very thorough um, piece in National Review, which asks a a forbidden question. Is the president compass mentis? Well, and it's not just that he's he's not responding to the American people. We now have reports that that Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, was trying to get in touch with Biden for what, about 36 hours and was not able to reach him. So one of one of our most important allies trying to reach the president who it, uh, Wall Street Journal also reports was not uh, we didn't brief them or their military before we started uh, this procedure. So th- we left our allies in the dark. He refuses to respond respond to the press's questions, and he's not really keeping the American people informed. So at every level, his responsibility, as you've all said when he was on the podcast uh, or, uh, before, this is his only job. That is his job, is to be a leader, means to keep people informed, to let our allies know what our plans are, and to work with them and coordinate. He's failing on all of those fronts as well. Yeah, we, we've had, I'm sorry, just briefly, just to note, the president has had, as far as I know, three conversations with allied leaders, one with the British prime minister, one with the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, and last night with French president uh, Macron. But that's it. Over the course of a week of a nightmare where all our allies have been banging on the table, screaming to get in touch with this White House to no avail. So not only do I think this is not um, an intentionally savvy media strategy on the part of the the White House, but um, it makes me rethink what we've discussed as a sort of brilliant um, campaign strategy on the part of of Biden, uh, whereby he would uh, sort of stay hidden and let Trump um, kind of bury himself uh, uh, while he was stayed out of the picture. Uh, I think it ended up uh, the upshot of his staying in uh, during the campaign was that it worked very well for him and um, hurt Trump. I don't know that that was the thinking behind it. Um, it could be that 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 th- th- this is where he's at in terms of workload and schedule. Well, and one one other thing, the Wall Street Journal has a devastating piece uh, that came out late last night, early this morning, about how much the administration actually did know about the risks and the threats. Antony Blinken received a report from people on the ground in Kabul in the embassy saying, here is what we're concerned about. Here is what is likely to happen. Here are all the risks that we need to plan for well in advance of everything that happened. So even the messaging that Biden himself is trying to promote to the American people turns out to be either he either he's deliberately lying or obfuscating or he did. He was not informed by his own people about the situation on the ground because they knew Blinken knew. I think it's important to note that uh, there are two or three different crises in Afghanistan uh, that are dovetailing, but but have separate roots. And this report in the Wall Street Journal 
gets into this to some degree, which is to say we have the humanitarian crisis of dealing with the you know tens of thousands of Afghanis who helped us, worked with us, and who are now at you know direct personal risk and their families at direct personal from the Taliban. Then we have the question of the American citizens who are there who need to get out and the chaos that is ensuing in relation to that. And third is the crisis of the rapidity of the collapse of the government and our just you know and, and the fall of Kabul and the fact that we apparently did astonishingly little to secure uh, the materiel, the military materiel, and and our and and weaponry, everything you want to talk about, left there because uh, we didn't have time to arrange to get it out. So, and presumably we didn't have time to arrange to get that stuff out because we did not know that Kabul was going to fall that fast and we would theoretically have time to do that or we would do it in some orderly fashion. And then once we lost the Bagram Air Base, there was no way to get that stuff out of country. I bring this up because... It's not just enough to say, as Biden said to George Stephanopoulos, if you want to be as charitable as you can, that there was going to be some chaos when we left the country. It's that elementary, you know, sort of what's going to happen 101, let's sit down around a table and discuss this, would be how do we make sure that our weaponry doesn't fall into the hands of the Taliban? I mean, how do we, for all the weaponry that we've supplied to the Afghan army, that's gone, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's where we're toast on that. They, they run the country, they take over the military. We don't have self-destruct buttons on their guns and things like that, that we gave them. That's bad enough, right? But um, elementary thing is one, okay, we're leaving. So what's, what are the arrangements to get our material out of there? Not just the files that we're burning in the embassy, not just the documents that we don't want to fall into their hands, but actual tools of war that they can then turn on the very people that we need to protect or turn on us later or use against Pakistani, use against the Northern Alliance or whatever you want to say. So this is a failure of a much larger size than we have even begun to think through because we've we have talked about like what what this means 10 years down the road for american alliances and what's going on in central asia what might be going on in the south china sea all of that we've 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 had that conversation what we have here is a situation that is like trump chaos on steroids right trump says i want this to happen and then people sit around the table and say, well, we can't do that. Okay, we'll write some half-assed executive order to make sure that this, you know, we, we can do what we can do. But we had them really thought it through. And then it goes to the courts and the courts stop it and nothing happens, right? This is an entirely different set of circumstances because there was going to be no countervailing pressure. There was going to be no, inside the United States, there was going to be no countervailing pressure on Biden. All he had to do, or on the Biden people, was sort of like, come up with an orderly plan for this, that even though there would be the humiliation, even though there would be the foreign policy catastrophe, even though there would be the long-term consequences, at least the Taliban would not be in possession of American hardware 
that we could have gotten out. Yeah. To- and toward that end, as the um, days pass, the nature of, yeah, go ahead. Just that um, <clears throat> Axios had a story on this. Uh, and, and I, you know, we can talk about, as you said, the 10 year you know, forward looking plan, but the 10 next 10 days are more critical. Axios had a story yesterday about the thinking in the White House regarding all the hardware that we left behind that is now in Taliban hands. Hundreds of Humvees, attack helicopters, attack aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, surveillance drones, tons of small arms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And they talked about the White House considering operations to neutralize it, blow it up, um, which, you know, is a spectacular waste of taxpayer dollars and a horrific outcome, but nevertheless, logistically difficult, first of all, because as the president likes to elide, he, he pretends as though our over-the-horizon capabilities here are really you know, just spectacular. Um, but the experience in the United, the United States had in 2014, 2015, when ISIS you know, streamed over the Syrian border into Iraq, we didn't have operatives on the ground to, to, to perform observations for us and to confirm our observations, provide us in sound intelligence. We're just using satellites to identify this sort of thing. is isn't as easy as it sounds. Um, it's, not, it's not as though this isn't the future where you can enhance image, zoom in, and just identify everything you want from space. And it's, it doesn't work that way. We're still technologically ob- obliged to human beings to, to be eyes for us on the ground. And we've lo- we're lo- lost a lot of them, if not lost all of them. Um, so even if we were to execute that strategy, it'd be difficult. But the, but the administration's hands are tied because of a deal that they worked out with the Taliban. Why are we not executing... Um, missions to uh, special forces missions to take our people out of just Kabul to say nothing of the rest of the country, like the French are, like the British are, like the Germans are, because we have this deal with the Taliban that is preserving the safety and utility of this airfield. doesn't take much to disable an airfield. Fire off a couple of mortars and that airfield don't work anymore. We need that airfield to function. But it is, the, it is the deal is of limited utility because they're not allowing Americans to get through. We have unconfirmed reports about Americans being harassed, beaten, um, to say nothing of our uh, Afghan allies, who are not making it through this barricade that the Taliban has erected around this airport. So we have this deal with the Taliban to preserve this airport. It's of limited utility because we're not getting the people through. Airplanes are taking off half empty. Um, we can't get enough people into this airfield. And uh, we're not executing the mission that we're supposed to be executing in a very short time frame because we're preserving this deal with the Taliban that we can't jeopardize. And so we have to leave them with an arsenal of weaponry that we left behind. We're in this box of our own making. And the president is just absolutely paralyzed by it to the point where they're just throwing their hands up and saying, all right, well, I guess there's thousands of Americans we're going to have to leave behind here because, you know, August 31st is coming up and we don't want to, you know, invalidate our political time frame. It's a mess that is difficult to describe in terms that aren't laced with profanity. Oh, I'm doing my best. Um, but that is the condition it's, we find ourselves in. But it's, it's actually easy to describe because, no, what you're describing is already a hostage situation, Right. Well, they, right. they, they, they already have Americans as hostages in the sense that that is their leverage. That is that is that is why they they hold all the cards. They negotiate everything there is to negotiate. And we sit there. Kate Bedingfield, who was the White House communications director, was apparently just on CNN with Brianna Keller and said, we're going to get out as many people as we can by the August 31st deadline. What August thirty first deadline? When 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 was that deadline set? It's not clear to me that it was announced that we had an August thirty first deadline. The deadline was last week when the government fell. There is no deadline. We are operating a new set of a new political reality. 
We don't know what that means. That was a very peculiar thing for her to say. It is as well, though... Well, the, the brass has been saying this August 31st deadline is operative. And, and Joe Biden said on ABC News that it wasn't operative. And now Brianna Keeler goes on CNN and says it is operative. So if you're following this very closely, you really don't know who's in charge here anymore. But what does it mean that it's operative? If there are 5,000 Americans in Afghanistan on September 1st, what deadline has been broken? They still have to be gotten out of there. Like there is no, the deadline doesn't exist if we don't achieve our aim by the time the deadline hits. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I guess they're going to cut off the electricity. The way Lloyd Austin described it was as if that is the case. Uh, we will do what we can until the clock runs down. I mean, that th- he said that. Right. But what does it mean? I mean, this is, I said this yesterday and I want to repeat it, which is like, we are, we are not going to leave thousands of Americans behind enemy lines in Afghanistan. This is, it's not going to happen. The American public, the American political system will not allow it to happen, which means that every day that we don't get them out, we're in a harder and harder and harder situation, politically, tactically, militarily, however you want to slice it, to perform the mission that we are going to have to perform one way or the other. But how, so to that yeah. point, I kind of want to, not not to be the skunk at the garden party, but are we sure that this administration's hubris hasn't already demonstrated that they will run out their own kind of political clock on the issue of Americans? I mean, remember the tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, you know, that hostage situations uh, do galvanize the public. They become very focused on getting Americans back home. But they do sometimes have to wait a long time. And I can well imagine the Biden administration in a kind of cynical political way saying we did everything we could. We had to respect this deadline and this package that, of course, we didn't negotiate. It's all Trump's fault. But yes, there are some Americans left behind, but they knew the risks and we'll do what we can. I mean, I can see them actually trying to run out the clock on this, particularly if it's difficult at some point to get footage and images that will, would galvanize the public to respond. I am stipulating or postulating or whatever you want to call it that simple political, moral American reality says we are not going to wake up on September 1st with 5,000 Americans still left in Kabul and say, oh, well, you know, they'll try to try, I'll have to try to jump a plane to, you know, I don't know where, where you know, to, uh, to Islamabad and and get out get out from there. Um, that is not going to happen. We you know we, entire entire moments in American foreign policy have hinged on ten people being hostage, let alone five thousand or two thousand or three thousand. There's going to be no discussion point in the United States other than how are we going to get these people out from under the Taliban jackboot in the United States. No one's going to cover for the Biden administration here. They've stopped covering for the Biden administration a little bit. Well, the media have. Noah's shaking his head on our on our. No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. Actually, I've been okay. surprised by the extent to which the press okay. has been. Um, inclined to, to litigate this issue. And, you know, the, the Biden administration has been doing its best to signal that the Afghan news cycle is over. It's time to move on. And they're not taking the bait to their credit. Um, but back to, you know, briefly to the, the subject that we opened uh, this conversation with, um, 
Joe Biden's, the White House has confirmed that Joe Biden will have a 1 p.m. press conference, which means he'll show up at 1.15. Presuming he takes questions at all, they will be limited because the president is going back to Delaware today at 2 p.m. 2 p.m. Something is very, very wrong. Yeah. See, to me, that's stranger than the um, jumbled up quote that you read at the beginning, because uh, that, you know, sort of uh, the inability to, to be fluid when you speak can kind of strike anyone to varying degrees at different times. Uh, this is this is a much broader. This is a sort of global problem with him. Um, I, I don't we don't know how the president spends his days and nights uh, during this 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 unbelievable crisis. Well, how about the fact that he didn't couldn't remember what what what, what arm of the of the service his his late son Bo was in, uh, which which came up yesterday. I mean, I don't I, I don't want to make light of of any of this. In fact, I'm, it's the opposite of making light. Um, but uh, if if we think uh, granted, like he gets you know he gets a lot of benefit of the doubt, he's getting a lot of passes on all sorts of things. If things go on like this for another week, you don't think that we're going to start, they're going to start having existential conversations about whether or not the president is cognitively capable of serving in office? Because I, I sure do. I, by the way, don't, don't look forward to this with any sense of either hope or schadenfreude or anything like that, because the idea, the idea of Kamala Harris serving as president fills me is like is like pouring ice into my blood. I mean, I, you know that is that is in some ways more terrifying than the prospect. Not only that, but um, I mean, we're just speculating. We're just imagining. But um, this crisis, on top of this string of crises that that the country has gone through, uh, including presidential crises uh, over the past two years or so, um, is would be I mean an unbelievable body blow. Uh, to, to the Republic. Can I also add, so uh, John Ellis, who's a former Boston Globe columnist, had had what I think is kind of the best metaphor for the for this question about uh, Joe Biden's competence to do the job that he was elected to do. And he said, you know, he, he it was he was talking about four different illusions in politics right now, um, one of which is that Trump is done. He says he's not. But he, about Joe Biden's ability uh, and whether or not he's too old, he said, everybody's covering, like everybody's pretending, oh, I mean, he lost a step or two. There's all these euphemistic phrases people use to describe, you know, how he's been acting. But he said, it's kind. we're in this moment now where it's like all the cars are lined up at a stoplight. The stoplight and Biden's in the first car. Everybody else is behind him. The stoplight turns green and he doesn't move. And you're polite for a little while. You're like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna force this guy along. But eventually everybody's gonna start honking because they want to go. And I thought that was kind of perfect because it's not, I mean, for whatever reason, this car needs to move and it's not moving the way it should. So that's kind of it, it, again, I agree with you, John. Nobody should welcome this even having to have this conversation, but we are we we're in this moment. We have to have that conversation. And I mean, I don't think we have to have it yet. I'm I, again. I'm now. I'm now pushing this, a you know, week into the future. I'm saying that if we continue in a circumstance in which Biden is not does not appear to be engaged, uh, gives incompetent press conferences or has press availabilities in which he does not appear to know what he's talking about or have clarity or says things that no rational president would say, like, yes, I expected chaos when we pulled out of Afghanistan. 
that kind of thing, uh, which some people can say, oh, you see, finally he's telling the truth. Like, no, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not the way it goes. It, you know, today is the 20th of August. If on the 27th of August we can have much the same conversation that we are having now, we're not going to be the only people having that conversation. He's getting a grace period of a week, week and a half, two weeks. But if it goes on like this, the grace period will end. It's a simple fact of the matter that we will be approaching this deadline. Presumably, we will not have our people rescued. We will not have everybody out of there. We will not know what the order of battle is going to be once they don't get out of there. And if he's like licking an ice, if he is, you know, if the leak we get is that he had Rocky Road ice cream on Wednesday night, you know, before he went to bed at 730, that is not going to be good. Like that is, this is where a lot of people are going to jump off the train. And uh, you know, uh, I again, I, this is a, this is a this is a perspective analysis. This is not wishful thinking or hope or anything like that. And it may well be that it's not true, and that he is just in a kind of state of paralysis because he actually literally doesn't know what to do. Things didn't go the way he wanted them to, and they've all got to adjust and try to figure out how on earth to put lipstick on this pig because they haven't been able to figure out how to do that yet. But if it's worse than that. Uh, this conversation is going to be unavoidable in part because it was had so irresponsibly about Trump. You know, it was so cavalierly brought up in the case of Trump because people hated him and thought that he was, you know, a lunatic. And he is kind of a lunatic, but there was no reason to believe that he was meant, you know, that he was incompetent to serve an office. Uh, it's just that they didn't like the way that he pursued the office or the way he behaved in office, and neither did I. But that didn't mean that the American people didn't vote him in and that there was absolutely no reason to invoke this against him. Um, but that will not be the case here. This could be – and this could be – just go with me for a second. This could be the sort of pluperfect object case in why the 25th Amendment exists. You're in a crisis and the president appears to be non compos mentis entirely. And what are you going to do? Because decisions have to be made that have the full force of the executive branch behind them. And unless unless you have somebody who is the qualified legal executive, it's not that these decisions are going to be made by Edith Wilson, Dr. Edith Wilson Biden, or by, you know, whoever else you know, stands in for them. Like we need a president of the United States in who, from whom the executive branch's authority flows to be in control. And the 25th amendment creates that modality temporarily for a couple of weeks or until the president can be, you know, can be thought to, to be uh, back in, in shape to do it or whatever happens after that. But it can't be that you have a guy who is without capacity in the middle of a crisis and you have people who are not elected and have no authority to make these decisions, making these decisions. They have no practice. That's why the 25th Amendment exists. And as I say, we are, you know, we're not there yet. But, um, you know, if, if the Council on Foreign Relations was having this conversation about Trump in 2017, they better be having it about Biden in 2021 
if these sorts of things keep going on. And you know what else we need to keep talking about are the economic consequences of this. And if you want to talk about the economic consequences on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, you want to go to our friends at the Bonson Group, that $3 billion financial management services firm by Coastal, run by our friend David Bonson, with his two newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. dctoday.com is, of course, a daily analysis of the behavior and going on in the market. And uh, dividendcafe.com is a weekly macroeconomic analysis looking at the entirety of the economy and how it's functioning. Uh, in these cases, what we need to understand in the middle of a crisis is what to do with our money, what kinds of policy decisions uh, policymakers are going to be looking at as they try to figure out how on earth to make decisions in, in, a, in an atmosphere so cloudy in which the future is so uncertain. That's why you need to be reading David's newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Go to dividendcafe.com and sign up for these newsletters from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. Guys, the COVID numbers are bad and they're not bad. They're bad and they're not bad. So we basically now, uh, having been a month ago or <clears throat> six weeks ago, having been you know down to close to a hundred deaths a day, we're now up to about nine hundred deaths a day. So we have nine. We you know we have had an increase in the death toll of about nine times. Uh, we have case loads, you know, ten times higher. Um, <clears throat> so this is horrible, and we are seeing, you know, we're seeing terrible consequences everywhere and ICUs filling up in rural places and all of that. And so this is absolutely horrible. However, I want to read something to you uh, from our, one of our least favorite, one of our least favorite uh, people, Barbara Ferrer, the health, uh, the uh, public health commissioner of LA County, uh, who reported that the percentages of vaccinated people who test positive uh, are hospitalized or die from COVID remain low in LA County. Less than 1% of the nearly 5.15 million fully vaccinated county residents as of Tuesday, 27,000 have tested positive. That's a rate of 0.5%. Only 7,742 were hospitalized for a rate of 0.014%. Only 68 have died for a rate of 0.5%. Oh, oh, one, three percent. Hospitalization numbers have been rising steadily for more than a month, but Ferrer noted today that between April and mid-August, roughly 25% of the COVID-positive patients in LA were hospitalized for a reason other than the coronavirus. Their infection was detected only during a routine admission screening. She was quick to add, however, quote, let's be clear, they definitely have COVID. We're not inflating our cases. Who asked her uh, if, we were if, she, if they were inflating their cases? Um, uh, the gentleman doth protest too much, methinks. So what we have here is exactly what we thought we had. It is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. It is a tragedy, but... In the, and it is an epidemic of the unvaccinated old. It is, an, you know, of, of people, you know, older than 25. Um, and we are now making policy choices based on 
the behavior of the unvaccinated, which was the whole point of the vaccination campaign to begin with, was not to have to do that. Uh, guys, what does all this tell you? The um, the the level of uh, apoplexy among the intelligentsia and the people who are in our business and you know uh, write for a living, talk for a living, to say nothing of policymakers uh, over breakthrough cases. And some of them are severe. Now, I don't mean hospitalization severe. I mean, these people are in bed rest at home. They're drinking orange juice. They're, they're, they're making videos into their phones about how bad they feel. It's a bad, you know, uh, fluish like nightmare for them, but it's not life threatening. It's not even threatening for hospitalization, but that's what they're focused on. They're hyperbolic. They're apoplexic about the, uh, about getting these breakthrough cases, which are not threatening to any infrastructure in this country. And this totally expands the terms of engagement in this war against this disease to the point where mission creep has led us into this suicidal chasm where we cannot escape the, the emergency measures that we put in place in 2020 to preserve the hospital system. Now we're not even talking about the hospital system with the exception of the South, the American South, where there's some uh, pretty high levels of unvaccinated people and, and the hospital system is filling up. But el- elsewhere in the country, that is not the case. And what is the end game here? If the end game is we can't get we can't let people get sick, which it rapidly is becoming, especially in schools. I mean, I'm going my kids are going to a new school next year. And if you're sick, not with COVID, if you have the sniffles, you are to stay away for a week. You are to be remote for a week. That is policy. And it's madness. It's absolute madness. It can't. It is unsustainable in the definitional sense of the term. You cannot keep doing this forever. It will have to stop. You know, it would not be madness. It would not have been madness had some things happened, like had the uh, rapid home test that was advocated and developed, you know, by Michael Mina of Harvard, had that actually been a real thing, because then you could be in a situation in which, no, your kid has the sniffles. You give them a home test where they literally like lick on a, you know, on a, on a piece of paper. And if it turns blue, they stay home. And if it turns red, they don't. Instant exposure question of whether or not they have, you know, they have the Delta variant in their system or they don't on a daily basis. Everybody in America could be doing this on a daily basis. For some reason, we refuse to develop this capability. Yeah, I have to reject the premise we refuse. Um, because it is it is entirely unnecessary to do that to children. It is entirely unnecessary to do that to protect adults who are eligible to be vaccinated. If we're talking about something that is not life threatening, no, you don't have to do that to children. There is no rationale for it beyond preserving the status quo in perpetuity. I reject the premise fundamentally at root. Well, and I, I think this also speaks to the issue of um the mask debate that's obviously uh, completely captured a lot of school boards and, and local schools and, and obviously governors are, are not, uh, this is important. I know I'm going to keep banging this drum. They are not issuing uh, mandates. What they're saying is that you cannot have a mask mandate. You may still go to school in a mask. If you are, as a parent, decide the risk to your child is high and you want your child to wear a mask, that's your decision to make. But the school cannot insist on it. That's what the red state governors like DeSantis and Abbott have said that are infuriating the kind of the kind of elite and particularly the media class. However, we there's so many things about these debates that aren't happening. So on the mask issue, for example, we have a ton of evidence from Europe where 
children, young children were not required to be masked even prior to high, higher vaccination rates last year and proof that they didn't in, encourage community spread. The spread happens mainly through the adults who are unvaccinated at this point, And that is true in schools as well. And yet we're having these pitch battles about whether or not children should wear masks to the point where we have this absolutely ridiculous opinion piece in the New York Times this week by a psychologist who claims actually wearing a mask will help your child learn. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. She invokes, well, you know, congenitally blind children learn just fine. I mean, we have we have gone far beyond rational debate if we're starting to compare the vast majority of children to the congenitally blind and seeing this as a, as a positive development in education. Well, that's why I was going to say, you know, I, I don't think any policy or any sort of technological implementation like the at-home tests about which I shared Noah's feelings, but also I don't, th- I don't think that they would uh, in any way stop the madness. The madness will find room on top of whatever's going on. So if you have the home tests, uh, there'll, there'll be, you know, reports will start coming out saying, well, we don't know how sensitive they really are. We don't know how they respond to the Delta variant. So, I mean, I already know people that don't accept the results of the quickie test. So even if it's, you know, negative multiple times, so they go and get the 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 uh, the, 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 the more accurate one. Um, it's the madness itself is a, is a runaway phenomenon that's not any longer connected to how we respond to things. Yeah, there's a bargaining element to this that... Uh people who really want out of this genuinely want out of this are going through right now. Like, well, if we just give into this demand, if we just consent to this measure, if there's just this tiny mitigation that we can all take, and then eventually it'll all go away. It'll all go away. It won't go away. It will never go away. The people doing this to you like doing this to you. There is no other option but resistance. And that that's why the parents who are resisting are as vigorous in their resistance as they are. And it's why they're, they're being pilloried by the mainstream media. But they have a point. I mean, the parents who are arguing about this stuff are showing up. They have signs that, you know, say things like we're not going to we're not going to wear your fear. Your fear, you know, we're not, you know, par- I don't co-parent with the government is what one of the some of the signs say. And they have a point. They have a point because they have realized probably too late that they actually have rights that the government does not have over the over decisions about how their children should live, work, uh, you know, all these things. Um, and it's it's I, I think, unfortunately, that Noah is right, that as long as you have a small vocal minority backed up by a mainstream media and, quite frankly, an administration that caves immediately to any of these fears, uh, parents really have to push back about the mass mandates, about a lot of these things. Okay, so since I'm uh, since you guys are, are are waving the Gazan flag and I'm the appeaser, let me just um, let me let me just ask you to 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 speculate on this, which is so. What we have here is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Um, it's it, it it is it is tearing through unvaccinated communities. It is killing people who are the un, unvaccinated. What do we do? What do we do? A thousand people a day are now dying. What do we do? I mean, I, I know that I said, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> weeks ago when this all started, we are not responsible. You know, it's like they're they're basically like they're driving drunk into a tree or they're Tiger Woods. They're speeding down a road and they flip their own car. We are not responsible for them flipping their own car. Our own, the only public health issue here has to do with whether or not they can spread and kill other people. The only people that they're killing are other people who are also driving drunk on the same road. Is there 
let's just be like hard nosed about this. So I is there I think, a public health? Go ahead. I, well, I think there's a better an, uh, analogy involving driving. Um, they're not wearing seatbelts, and the only people they're killing are people who aren't other people who aren't wearing seatbelts. Um, to to do what we are currently doing would be to um, sort of prohibit areas of the country uh, from using their cars at all because there are people on the road without seatbelts. Um, I think what we do is, um, in terms of a policy, um, not much, not much, very, very little, the minimum. They are These are adults who are making a free choice about their lives, exactly like smokers. Uh, smoking is legal. Not taking the vaccine is legal. Both are stupid. Both are potentially deadly. There is nothing for us to do about it. And, and, and institutions that don't want to allow smoking in their in their facilities have every legal yep. and constitutional right to do that. And I think it's perfectly appropriate sound for these private institutions, absent a, a state or, or a municipal level mandate, to say, I'm not going to let you in without a vaccination card. There will be challenges to that. We've talked about that. Um, it's much more difficult to impose that on these on these uh, firms and businesses. I'm in favor of that uh, p- privately, but these communities have made a choice when they're not doing that. Communities in the deep south, for example, who are not doing that, have made a choice that they will tolerate a certain level of death in order to have the services and freedoms that they enjoy. We think that's an irrational choice. I think that's an irrational choice, but that is the choice that they have made, and we can't rationalize them out of it. So there's nothing to be done. <clears throat> But you use the seatbelt analogy, right? And in the 1980s, they passed seatbelt laws. So you you don't actively arrest somebody who was driving in the car without a seatbelt. But if you pull them over, you're a cop, you pull them over for speeding and they're not wearing a seatbelt, you can then you write can them up for, for a seatbelt seat violation. If a cop sees you not wearing a seatbelt, he he's obliged to pull you over. Okay. All right. So but the, the, then let's, so let's use that analogy. <clears throat> okay. So you are somehow there there are laws and these were litigated and constitutionally litigated because people were outraged by seatbelt laws and helmet laws and things like that and they went through the courts and the court said well you don't have an unlimited right to drive a car drive a, you know that's not a civil right to drive an automobile or a, or a or a motorcycle or something like that you have to abide by these community standards and wear a seatbelt because you know if you crap whatever but so I'm just saying, it's not as though we just say, okay, well, you can drive around without a seatbelt. We don't no, actually. We do. We do. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we do because the state of Maine does not require motorcyclists to wear helmets. Local, local, you know, th- this is where federalism comes into this equation because some states have decided the risk is fine to Noah's point. In Maine, you can cruise around on your cycle without a helmet. You see tons of people doing it. Oh, I thought there was. I thought there were federal highway laws, money that that were was connected to that. Okay, so I'm in New Hampshire, famously, so you know, doesn't have a seatbelt mandate. Okay, so I'm stupid. So, 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 forget me then. Um, uh, but I will say this, which is, um, <clears throat> uh, I think that the resistance, uh, w- when it comes to children, the resistance is real. Uh, that there, there, there needs to be a resistance. But the problem is, and this goes to Christine's piece in the current commentary about the parents' revolt and whether or not there's going to be a parents' movement, uh, the problem is that most people in the country don't have children and they don't have school-aged children and it's no skin off their nose if a kid wears a mask for eight hours a day. 
It is no skin off their nose. They don't care. 75% of people don't have kids under under 18 and don't have kids in school between the ages of 4 and 18 or whatever it is, and they don't care. And and so uh, there, it's very little that can be done to sort of change those numbers in a polling way that will have that will cause politicians to, to or public health officials to relent. I just think, practically speaking, uh, let uh, you know. I'm going to pause for a second, uh, uh, talk about our final sponsor, and then we can go into the final moment here. Final sponsor is our new one this week, Raycon. Uh, 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 Raycon's uh, everyday earbuds—they uh, are uh, fantastic. Uh, no matter how you're feeling about getting back out there into the wider world, as we're talking about, you need to. Uh, and when the world gets too loud, you can create your own soundtrack by popping in those Raycon wireless earbuds. That soundtrack can include listening to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, which a lot of people do as they're taking a walk or going around or on subways or on public transport or whatever. And uh, I was listening to our own podcast through these headphones and they these earbuds, and they are fantastic. The best way to listen, they come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort. And unlike some other brands, they don't stick out of your ears. They have a 32-hour battery life. So you can listen to what you want, when you want for a really long time. They started half the price of other premium audio brands but sound just as good. And they come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, so you really can't lose. Give them a try. You'll see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon. Right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash commentary. Okay, so let's uh, quickly talk about the politics here. Biden is facing a perfect storm, and so are Democrats. Democrats want us to now want to spend three and a half trillion dollars on this reconciliation package, and their party—the wheels are coming off their party all over the place. We have this Afghanistan crisis, and we have this surge in COVID, and um, and the D- Republicans are not implicated in the surge in COVID in this one sense, which is that the public, for good or ill, does not associate them with. Uh, stringent rules involving COVID that will have effects on people's personal lives and personal behavior, masking mandates, whatever, having to, in New York State, having to show your your vaccine pass, whatever you want to call it. However you slice it, if people are going to get angry about COVID or if businesses are going to see real fall-offs in their business because of, of some of these COVID numbers, I don't think they're going to blame Republicans. I think they are more likely to blame the powers that be who are imposing these mandates in, 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 in these, in these blue States who are, uh, you know, blue state governors. So, um, I think the politics of things are, 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 I don't really understand how Democrats think they're going to work their will over the next couple of months with everything that is coming at them and everything that is going in a direction opposite from the one that is helpful to them getting their agenda through. Can anybody see a way in which they maneuver except through, just through bull force? Um, Nancy Pelosi decided she wanted to go to war with the moderates who said, just give us the hard infrastructure bill now that we can pass, and we'll discuss the other bill later. That could be an incredibly stupid move on her part because they could score this victory next week 
<clears throat> you know, they could change the topic next week by passing the infrastructure bill Monday. I mean, I don't even know if the House is in next week, but they could pass it on Monday. Biden could sign it on Tuesday. They could at least have something under their belt that they could claim as a victory in the middle of all this chaos and madness. And she's going to hold that bill hostage and everything could melt down between now and when the budget reconciliation package comes through. I mean, on the on the point about um, uh, blaming Republicans for what's going on with with COVID, there's something slightly interesting going on in that Republicans are getting the blame, uh, but it's like um, Republican citizens are getting the blame. You know, it's not it's not on the leaders. It's 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 the blame is on like you know the 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 rubes uh, out there who are keeping us in. Uh, it, you know, it, in the in the pandemic, um, that's kind of unusual. That's kind of an unusual um, way to um, sort of attack uh, 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 the actual Republican leadership. Um, but but it is there nonetheless. I want to read two pieces, two very similar pieces today, t- discussing the White House's thinking, particularly with regard to Afghanistan. This is the cri- live crisis of the moment, but it, it's applicable generally. The first is a quote from a Reuters news story this morning. Quote, President Joe Biden is brushing off criticism of his administration's chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal because he and his aides believe the political fallout at home will be limited, according to White House aides and administration officials. And The Atlantic has a piece that dovetails um, Peter Nichols, who's a White House reporter for The Atlantic, summarizes the, th- the, the piece thusly. Quote, people close to Biden visualize a political scenario in which Afghanistan doesn't hurt him politically. Voters preoccupied with their own lives and tired of the war will appreciate what, that he withdrew U.S. forces after 20 years. Um, we should really fear the prospect of that scenario playing out insofar as it means Americans are so callous and indifferent towards the fate of our own soldiers, the sacrifice of U.S. interests, the trading of long-term security vis-a-vis non-state terrorist actors and great powers that seek to undermine American hegemony, that we will just be done. I don't, I don't detect that in the ether. I don't, I don't feel that yet. Uh, I don't feel anything like that, fortunately. Um, but if the White House is right, they are banking on Americans' willingness to... Uh, to endure decline. And uh, that is a terrible indictment of a presidency that they think this country is just spent. We're a spent force. And it's time to acknowledge that and sink into a warm bath and succumb to the forces of history. Um, I, I hope they're wrong. But if they're right, it's even more terrible than what they've unleashed. Well, I mean, I think that it's an interesting bet. In other words, Biden, Biden is saved, would be saved by a by a now two-presidency assertion uh, that despite talk about how uh, Trump was going to make America great again and Biden talking about return to normalcy and all of this, that we are in a new situation in which America retreats instead of, of, you know, advances um, the cause of liberty, freedom, American interests or whatever you want to say – and um and and retreats into panic fear and isolation at home uh in connection to um a a virus that you can avoid having terrible consequences from if you just get the goddamn vaccine and so uh we're going to learn something very powerful about this country in the next couple of months 
and we, we we better keep our eyes open to make sure that what we see is what's really happening. Um, I'm with Noah. I don't think that we're we're done yet, but you know we might be done. I mean, it happens. Britain was done after World War II. Uh, you know, uh, we we might be done. I doubt it. But we'd be done without exogenous factors. We would just we would just be done by virtue of just being kind of sleepy. Like we just need a little nap. So let's just sacrifice everything we've acquired over the 240 years of this country's history. It wouldn't be like Great Britain sacrificing uh, empire, pulling back from empire under extreme duress. There's no appreciable duress. I'm not looking around. I don't feel much duress. This is a crisis that we can get through. All of these are crises we can get through and have done so rather admirably. But this White House is just in the mood to surrender and give up. And they think that's where the American public are. And I, I hope to God they've misjudged us. I think they have. Um, but the fact that that's, this is the temperature that they're taking of this environment is itself very unnerving. Well, it's the only it's the only bet they have right now. It's the only play they got. The only play they got is, yeah, people aren't going to care. You know, they're just going to be they're more interested in the Kardashians and, you know, yes. and the real housewives. Now, now I'm really dating myself because that stuff is like 10 years old. You know, they're more interested in whoever the latest TikTok star is, whose name I don't know. Um, the, and, their, uh, their bet about people not caring um, is completely dependent <clears throat> on the loss of American lives. Um, if, if that they have their fingers and toes and everything else crossed, as as we all should, um, that no Americans die throughout whatever else goes on, uh, whatever horrible scenes we see, whatever happens to Afghans and wheel wells and whatever else, they 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 their their bet is lost. If Americans die, and remember, it only took two Americans to die. I, I mean, that sounds callous to put it that way. So I, I apologize, but I mean, it took two Americans in the hands of ISIS tor- being tortured and dying for the politics of ISIS to flip entirely in the United States. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before, but we went from sixty-four percent in full favor of a total and complete pullout from Iraq to sixty-four percent saying we needed to defeat ISIS. It was a complete flip around um, as a result of these two, uh, uh, to, you know, these two monstrous um, killings of Americans in 2013 and 2014. Anyway, um, so uh, I, we're not dead yet. And, uh, and, and, and that's uh, the fact that I think Noah's right. The fact that the Biden people seem to be betting on that as their desperate hope that this is one way they can get out of this catastrophe that they have imposed on us for no good reason other than their own, you know, ornery calculations about or Biden's own ornery calculations about what it was that he did and did not want to do in relation to this. Um, uh, that, that they're playing the hand they have to play. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, it, if it's, if it's, we hope it's a losing hand. And I think there's every reason to believe that it's, it's a losing hand. And if it's not that America is losing hand, uh, and not Biden, um, and with that, um, I, I will not be, uh, I'll be out the first uh, three days of next week. So I will leave the podcast in the capable hands of my colleagues here. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure that they will make you, uh, you won't miss me and you'll probably not want me to come back because um, they're so great. So Abe, Christina, Noah, in my departure and in my absence, keep the candle burning.